You're listening. You're listening to a University of Kentucky. University of Kentucky. College of Arts and Sciences podcast. So on that note, I'd also like to recognize the Student Sustainability Council for their generous contribution to, to this evening's talk. It really would not have been possible without them. I'd also like to thank our other sponsors, the Student Government Association, with a big thanks to Roshan Pali for coordinating that the College of Arts and Sciences Departments of Geography and Sociology, the Central Kentucky Council for Peace and Justice, and the media team at The Hive. And thanks for the tech crew with the University of Sound and Lights for providing the Q&A mics and the sound system tonight. So as previously noted by Alda Facio, the academic director of the Women's Human Rights Institute at the University of Toronto, any introduction to our speaker tonight, Dr. Vandana Shiva, is perhaps superfluous because of her international renown as an ecofeminist, philosopher, scientist, prolific author, activist, and world advisor. But for those of you who are less acquainted with her work, I'll go ahead and give a brief introduction. Dr. Shiva received the Right Livelihood Award, which is commonly known as the Alternative Peace Prize, and the Earth Day International Award of the UN in 1993 the Pride of the Dune Award in 1995 for her contributions to protecting the region from limestone mining, the International Award of Ecology in 1997, and the Sydney and Calgary Peace Prizes in 2010 and 11, respectively. She has been featured in the documentaries Thrive, Flow for the Love of Water, Dirt, Arise, The World According to Monsanto, Queen of the Sun, and several others. She was dubbed one of the most powerful communicators in Asia by Asia Week, an environmental hero by Time Magazine in 2003, one of the top seven most powerful women in the world by Eve Ensler in 2010, and one of the top women activists and campaigners by The Guardian in 2011. Dr. Shiva's work for the rights of women and the protection of nature began in the 1970s with her contributions to the famously successful Chipko movement to protect the Himalayan forests in Uttar Pradesh from logging. Though she received a PhD in, philosophy, in the philosophy of physics, drawing connections between quantum theory and the interconnectedness of ecological life, and has received six honorary doctoral degrees and will receive her seventh next month, Dr. Shiva noted in an article last December that she learned the most useful lessons of all, those concerning the importance of biodiversity and the elimination of what she calls the monoculture of the mind from the forest during her time with the Chipko movement. Drawing on this inspiration, Dr. Shiva founded an independent institute, the, found, the Research Foundation for Science, Technology, and Ecology in 1982. This institution's dedication to a high quality and independent research to address the most significant and ecological issues of our times then led to the creation in 1991 of Navdanya, meaning Nine Seeds, a women-centered national movement to protect biodiversity, promote organic farming and fair trade, and empower rural farmers. Navdanya's efforts have resulted in the conservation of more than 3,000 rice varieties from all over India and have established 60 seed banks in 16 states across the country. She has also helped movements in Africa, Asia, Latin America, Switzerland, and Austria with their campaigns against genetic engineering. In 2003, she launched the Global Citizens Campaign of the WTO GMO dispute between the US and Europe. In addition to her activist work, Dr. Shiva has authored over 500 papers in leading scientific and technical journals, as well as 20 books, including the titles Staying Alive, Women, Ecology, and Development, Water Wars, Soil, Not Oil, Biopiracy, Stolen Harvest, and the very influential Ecofeminism, which she co-edited co -edited with Maria Mize. 
As an expert on sustainable development, she serves as an advisor to several organizations, including the Third World Network, the Asia Pacific People's Environment Network, the National Hispanic Environmental Council, and the Women's Environment and Development Organization. She sits on the National Board of Organic Standards of India, Prince Charles's panel of experts on sustainable agriculture, and chairs the Commission of the Future of Food in Italy. She is currently working with the government of Bhutan to ensure that all farmers in in Bhutan are equipped with and use ecologically appropriate organic farming skills. The focus of her address tonight will be the future of food. It is now my great honor and privilege to welcome Vandana Shiva to the stage. Thank you very much. Thank you for that very long introduction. I sometimes forget I've been in all those places. Uh, the, the future of food is being shaped in many ways. There are those who would like the future to be based on all the errors of the recent past. Errors that have cost the planet and people very hugely. And then there are people around the world wanting to take the best of 10,000 years of good farming the best of scientific knowledge that we have today, ecologically, and create other futures. A lot of people feel, oh, the future's already determined. But the future will never be determined. It'll always be open. The present is uncertain, the future even more. The agriculture that has become dominant in, as a paradigm is an agriculture that is still absolutely marginal to the food question. And when I say it's marginal to the food question, I mean both in terms of how many people are involved in it. Most people who farm, even today, are small farmers. Most of them are women. I did a UN study once. They wanted me to look at women in agriculture, and I was surprised to find that in India, most farmers are women. The trends that assume that food is coming from industrial agriculture are based, I realized, on so much fabrication which is why I've ended up looking at agriculture, working on alternatives, and doing what I do. My eyes were opened up to what agriculture was. You know, I was busy with quanta, and why did I have to need, need, I didn't need to look at what was happening with agriculture. And when I was a young student, you know, you wanted to understand the basics of nature. You did physics. There was no ecology. 
And fortunately, my journey in life took me through quantum theory, which made me shed all the mechanistic assumptions that are so dominant in industrial agriculture. 1984 was the year that, and it's not just the title of Orwell's book, but a very Orwellian year for India. Um, exactly June the 4th, I remember, suddenly the army was sent into Punjab. Part of the reason was there was very extreme militancy and terrorism that had emerged in Punjab. But 4th of June, I also knew the farmers of Punjab were going to do a blockade of the grain because of the injustice they felt they were going through. In the normal narrative of what happened in Punjab, if any of you have even remembered, because it's as if terrorism started 9-11, Punjab took six times more lives in the early 80s than 9-11. And I would say it's continuing to take lives because while in the early 80s, the anger of a very highly discontented agricultural community came out as terrorism, throw a bomb, shoot a few people, it's still there. But after the militarized takeover, the anger's being directed inwards. And now, Punjab is among the four pockets of very high suicide rates among farmers. Very high suicide rates. Very high cancer rates. There's a train that leaves Punjab called the Tans cancer train. The second part of that story that does often get told is about religion. But there's been no religious conflict in Punjab. It was always an agriculture issue. And I decided to look at agriculture both because of June 4th and December the 2nd, 1984, when a pesticide plant leaked in the city of Bhopal. Cold winter night, very low inversion layer, this poisonous gas just went through killing. You'll remember the images of the mountains of bodies. 3,000 that night, 30,000 since then, hundreds of thousands still being born crippled. And so by the end of that year, I'm asking myself, you know, here's a pesticide plant. Punjab is the land of the Green Revolution. The Green Revolution was given a Nobel Peace Prize. Something's going on here that doesn't make sense. Punjab is not a land of peace. So why did the Green Revolution get a Peace Prize? And uh, why do we need these poisons? In fact, immediately after the Bhopal disaster, we had to wait about three days. We weren't allowed to enter because of the poison in the air still. But when flights were allowed, I went immediately carrying saplings of the neem tree. The neem, as you know, is an Indian species that has spread worldwide. Extremely good pest control agent. My mother used it in the house. My grandmother used it. The farmers use it. We know it's a good pest control agent. And I started a campaign, no more Bhopal's plant in neem. Ten years later, I find it's patented. 
and that's another story. And the interesting thing is the same people who used to say, oh, it's a superstition that Indians have that Neem has pest control properties, were then running with patents to the patent office. So I just had one simple question in my mind. Why is agriculture so violent? And what was this thing called the Green Revolution? The Green Revolution is the name given to a not green, not revolutionary process. It is very anti-green and it is extremely anti-people. Basically, after the wars, um, there were all these this chemical industry, particularly the fertilizer uh, industry, which was the old explosives industry, because fertilizers were being made in the old explosive plants. And they wanted to sell chemicals all over the world. And already in the late 40s, early 50s, an attempt was being made to spread these chemicals worldwide. But there was a problem, and the problem is as you know, with these mineral synthetic fertilizers, there's instant uptake. And with traditional crops, there is the problem of lodging. There's, if there's a wind or too much rain, there's a falling over. I call it the plants satyagraha against poisons. The satyagraha was Gandhi's word for the force of truth. And I do believe the plants were saying, take this rubbish away. We do better with organic fertilizers. But the push carried on. They couldn't deal with the old seeds. So Norman Borlaug, who was in the defense labs of DuPont, was picked up and sent off to Mexico to be part of what became the Maize and Wheat Research Institute later under the International Consultative Group on International Agriculture Research. And interestingly, just a few weeks ago, Mr. Slim, who's not very slim in his wealth, he's now the richest man in the world, and Mr. Gates, who used to be the richest man in the world, have just poured huge money into that old institute for biotech and new technologies. So Norman Borlaug's world work was, how do you change the plant to adapt to the chemicals? Because the plants were rejecting the chemicals. And eventually they came up with these dwarf varieties. Not that you could create these in the lab. For the rice, the dwarf variety that was crossed was taken from uh, Indonesia. And for the wheat, it was a norin variety from Japan. And talking about um, the illusions Norman Borlaug, who was the one who got the Nobel Peace Prize, um, sent off 12 people he trained to spread the seed and chemicals because they went together. And the seeds were called miracle seeds to deploy them worldwide. And he called these 12 students of his, his 12 wheat apostles. Now, it wasn't so easy to transform world agriculture. 65 in India, we had a drought. 
And a drought always means little less production. A little increase in prices, more for the new urban industrial complexes that were being built at that time. Giant steel townships. There wasn't famine, there wasn't scarcity in the villages. The scarcity was in terms of higher prices. So India asked for a larger shipment of wheat. And India was told, sorry, you won't get the wheat unless you change your agriculture to chemicals. India's prime minister of that time, um, Lal Bahadur Shastri, refused. 62, we'd had a, had a war with uh, China. And 65, we'd had a war with Pakistan. So uh, Shastri was very committed to food self-reliance. And I remember in those days, he gave a call, I was still in school, he gave a call that there should be no lawns. Everyone should grow wheat. And we were growing wheat in our front lawns. He died mysteriously in Tashkent during a peace agreement. And the pressure continued on the next prime minister in the Indira Gandhi. And the pressure came from a combination of forces that are still a combination of forces in changing world agriculture. The World Bank, the Rockefeller and Ford Foundations, and USAID. The World Bank devalued our currency and said, we'll give you the loans for these chemicals and these seeds. In 91, we were in a deep debt. And the structural adjustment package was applied on us, of the kind that's being applied everywhere. And it used to be only for third world countries. Now structural adjustment is in US, it's in Europe. There's no society free of adjusting to the crisis created by greed, the crisis created by financial institutions. When I looked at the 91 debt, one third of the borrowing was green revolution related. So 30 years later, we were then having to further hand over our agriculture to the very corporate interests that had driven the first round. Now, it's always been said the Green Revolution moved India from famine to self-reliance. When I did my research on the Green Revolution and wrote my book, The Violence of the Green Revolution, at that time for, I was doing work with the United Nations University, and we've continued to do those calculations, you can explain that increased production of rice and wheat which did take place, on the basis of increased land under rice and wheat and increased water to rice and wheat. It's not the miracle seeds and the chemicals that produce more rice and wheat, but more land and more water. And last year when Borlaug died at a debate with the Borlaug Foundation, and I mentioned this because they kept talking about how much has been produced by the seeds and chemicals. I said, you know, with organic seeds and organic methods, we'd have produced exactly that same amount if we'd had so much land and we'd have that much irrigation. So it's fascinating that an output of an entire system is deflected into being the result 
of interventions of chemicals and new seeds. I mentioned the disaster this has left Punjab with, but they don't give up on the Green Revolution because it's too important a story. So now they're saying, okay, let's take it eastwards to India because in eastern soils have not been destroyed, eastern water is not over. And then, of course, Mr. Gates is pushing what he calls the Alliance for the Green Revolution in Ag um, Ag Africa, which abbreviates to Agra. It's called Agra. And I always say this Agra won't build a Taj Mahal. All it'll do is create a crisis of a very deep kind for Africa. Because we've seen what chemical fertilizers do to the soil. We've seen how they kill the very life of the soil. And not only do they destroy the soil, they destroy the water. The reason there's 10 times higher use of water in chemical industrial farming is because of those chemicals. You can't do chemical agriculture without irrigation. Whereas you can do good ecological farming without irrigation because organic farming, organic matter makes the soil itself the reservoir and allows the soil to hold the moisture. I have seen in, in ex extended droughts of the kind you're having this year, and I'll travel to the farmers we work with. There'll be an organic farmer who works with Navdanya. There's been a drought, but his field is full of crops. And there's another waiting for the rain and the water with nothing. Now, usually when they talk of yields, because the green revolution varieties were called high yielding varieties. The UN said it's a wrong word. They should be called high response varieties. Because they're not high yielding in and of themselves. You take away the water, take away the chemicals, they have no yield. And that's what you see. More and more vulnerability to climate change. More and more vulnerability to um, water scarcity. That agriculture that came out of war, both in chemical fertilizers, herbicides, Agent Orange, you remember, Herb Vietnam War? Your fields are today of Vietnam because the second generation promise, they call it, in India, they call it the second green revolution, which is genetic engineering. The same companies that push the chemicals now want to own the seed. And genetic engineering is the means for getting ownership of the seed. I call it the door they must pass through. But genetic engineering is not the ultimate aim. Patenting is the ultimate aim. Without genetic engineering, they couldn't have started on the path of owning seed as patents. And Monsanto's on record saying that in drafting the intellectual property rights agreement of WTO, they were the patient, they were the diagnostician, and the physician all in one. They wrote the treaty, took it to the US government, which then imposed it to the rest of the world. And the problem they defined was that farmers save seeds. That was their problem. And the solution was now it should be treated as a crime. Seed saving should be treated as a crime, which is why you have the famous Bowman case that's going on in this country where Bowman didn't even save the seed, he just went and bought seed, 
mixed up seed from an elevator, planted it out, and Monsanto has sued him, and I think it's a $180,000 fine at the lower level courts. You can't even buy grain in an elevator and plant it out. And how does the claim to patenting come? Because of the way they have transformed the language. Seed, you don't hear the word seed. I'm fighting a case in India, intervening with the farmers' unions and the state government of Andhra Pradesh, which had earlier sued Monsanto for charging too much, and this was in the antitrust courts, and we intervened there too. Now, because of the fact that patented seeds mean high prices, the only aim you take a patent is to collect a rent, to collect a royalty. But royalties from poor farmers only come from debt. And beyond a point, indebtedness for an unreliable seed is not working anymore. And so we've seen, beginning in 97, 98, when the first attempt to introduce BT cotton through trials was started, and since then Monsanto's taken over 60 Indian seed companies through licensing arrangements. Um, beginning from 1997-1998, concentrated in the cotton areas of India, which I call the suicide belt now, we have had 270,000 suicides of farmers. 8,000% jump in prices of seed. See that it costs five rupees, jumps to 4,000 rupees. So unreliable you to buy three times in a planting season. And already failing because the BT cotton, which is one generation of uh, cotton crops, of uh, genetically modified crops, basically has a gene to produce a toxin in the plant. It's a pesticide producing plant. It's designed to control one pest called the American bollworm, which came with the American hybrids. It doesn't control the bollworm, the bollworm evolves resistance. Meantime, new pests are being created. Pests that were never in cotton before. 13 times more pesticide use. The combination of patented seed and pesticides is trapping farmers in debt. But for Monsanto, it never fails. Because now they have Bolgar too, which is even more costly. In the US, the Roundup Ready crops are failing because the weeds that were to have been controlled by the Roundup have become resistant to Roundup. Half of the farms of the US, 15 million acres overtaken by superweeds, on which Agent Orange is now being sprayed. And DuPont is waiting in the wings for an Agent Orange resistant crop. Two convergences which make this tragedy very, very profitable. The first is that the old agrochemical industry gets to sell more chemicals. Now they also own the seed. And with all the toxics, as you get more cancer, they own the medicine. So how can it ever go wrong for them? Every disaster is a new market. The second convergence is the fact that 
having shaped, having driven the World Trade Organization, the free trade logic, Corporations that were, at that point, only US corporations have become global corporations. So, as I mentioned, Monsanto wrote the Intellectual Property Rights Agreement, and Cargill wrote the Agriculture Agreement. And between these two companies, they have shaped the agriculture of the last two decades, worldwide. Ecologically, where has it taken us? More rapid erosion of biodiversity than we've ever witnessed before. Chemical monocultures had anyway led to a lot of species diversity. If you own, you know, growing rice and wheat in India and corn in, uh, in, and soya in the US. But we used to eat 8,500 species of plants. That was the kind of diversity on which the human diet was based across cultures. We are now growing and trading in eight commodities, of which four are genetically engineered, and they have the highest rate of expansion. All of Argentina, Roundup Ready Soya. Most of Brazil, Roundup Ready Soya. US, Roundup Ready Soya, and corn. <coughs> Canada, Roundup Ready Canola. India, BT Cotton. Four crops with two trades in the hands of five companies, particularly Monsanto, 95% GMOs controlled by them. The promise was it would produce more food. Failure to yield. Because in any case, yield does not come from the gene they introduce. It comes from the plant into which it was introduced, which means the, con the conventionally bred plant. The most significant part of this very, very dramatic shift is that food has stopped being food. Only 2% of the soya grown in the US is eaten as food, which means we are always told, here's all this amazing production of food. This is the solution to hunger. 98% is either going for biofuel or animal feed, not going for food. Food has become anti-food, I call it. Non-food or anti-food. Today, 2013, according to the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN, 80% of the food eaten by human beings comes from small farms. And yet we have a paradigm that says small farms are unproductive. We have a paradigm that says farmers should disappear. Every day in India, this is our big debate at the policy level, where we churn out more and more data to show how much more a small farm produces. The UN is showing small farms produce more. And yet there is such a giant propaganda machine keeping up the old story that without chemicals we'll starve and the new story that without GMOs we'll starve. So we need another story. We already have it in the practice of new ecological agriculture, new food communities everywhere, everywhere. 
but between the dominated, dominant media and the fact that that shift in globalization didn't just create a global spread of the power of Monsanto over seed and the power of Cargill Conagra over food trade. It also changed the relationship between governments and these corporations and therefore between people and their governments. The big shift is, and it's deepening, is that we literally now have Monsanto governments worldwide. The White House is a Monsanto White House. And the White House gives instructions to our Prime Minister's office very directly. Phone calls are picked up. Particularly when we are very successful in shifts. The BT cotton, I could delay it for four years because of a Supreme Court case. And then the next round was trying to take over, through genetic engineering, India's famous brinjal, the eggplant, the aubergine. India's the home of aubergine. We have 4,500 varieties. Every part of India cooks aubergine in a different way. We love it. Monsanto wanted to do genetically engineered BT aubergine. Nine, 2007, the trial started. We went to schools. We got the schools to write to the prime minister and the health minister. Say, I don't want to eat this stuff. Did all the research. The, the movement built up so much. By 2010, when they gave an approval, there was such an outcry across the country that our environment minister was forced to hold public hearings. Seven cities. Anyone could come. Places like town halls like this. And uh, I, I remember this very clearly because it must have been around, I think it must have been around 9th of February when uh, he announced a moratorium. He was to have announced it on 10th of February. Why did he do it on 9th? Because Nina Fedorov, he used to be the biotechnology. You know, you always have in your State Department a biotechnology promoter. At that point, it was Nina Fedorov. And I knew she was coming because I was asked to meet her. Um, and her main role was to come and influence the government to say, don't ban this crop. Unfortunately for her, the snowstorm in Washington prevented her from flying. And the minister proponed the announcement by a day. So there's a moratorium, not just on the BT eggplant, but all other food crops in India. We have no GM food. During last year, we had a parliamentary committee, two years of work. They said, look at the suicides, look at the BT cotton. We don't need this technology. And they recommended an absolute closure to the GMO door. Our Supreme Court is hearing a case. And they said, we don't understand this stuff. It's too complicated. So they said, we'll appoint three very eminent interdisciplinary scientists on a technical expert committee, which then put its, its report very wise and cautious. They said, for crops. For all crops in genetic engineering, there should be a 10-year moratorium because the science of assessment is totally out of tune. The science of assessment is based on something called substantial equivalent. 
where you never look at the actual genetically engineered crop. You just assume it's equal to natural. It's like the parent. I have called this ontological schizophrenia because when it comes to substantial equivalence, a GMO is natural. When it comes to a patent, suddenly this thing has become new, invented, never in nature before. How can some same thing be like nature, of nature, and an invention that has nothing to do with a million years history of the evolution of that plant? But that is part of what we are dealing with. Very conveniently manufactured inconsistencies that they assume no one will see through. Now, the minute our parliament and technical committee of the Supreme Court put out these things, the entire public relations machinery of the world descended on India. And there aren't too many of them. There's one guy who wrote a book, his name is Dennis Avery, How to Feed the Planet, no, no, uh, Saving the Planet with Pesticides and Plastics. He now, of course, wants to save the planet with GMOs. And there's a whole list we can find. There's a guy called Henry Miller who pretended to be a Stanford professor during the Proposition 37 coming on TV. And bottom they had Stanford University. The university forced them to withdraw that ad and remove Stanford University because he does not work for Stanford University. He works for a little think tank which has a small office in Stanford University campus. So what we are up against is a dominant system that at every level is based on falsehood. It's based on the false idea that the soil is dead and empty and an empty container. And what you need is fertilizers. And yet these fertilizers are the very cause for soil infertility and the death of soils. You have this new assumption that life is empty. Farmer's breeding doesn't count. Nature's evolution doesn't exist. You put a toxic gene, now you've created backwards a 10 million year history of a plant and forwards forever. But there will be no for forever in that model because it is designed to collapse. If in 20 years, the genetically engineered BT cotton and the genetically engineered Roundup Ready soya is already failing, there is no reason to imagine that suddenly this crude thinking, this crude thinking of engineering life is going to deliver a more sophisticated system. It can't. Because life is self-organized. Life is not engineered. You might engineer a gene into a life form, but its reproduction is self-organized. And in the language of the WTO and ownership of patents, they actually have a language of non-biological production of plants. There is no non-biological production of plants. They talk about technology traits. Um, Chief Justice John Robertson has said in this Bowman case, 
already letting you know that he's going to rule for Monsanto. Why in the world would anybody spend any money to improve the seed if as soon as they sold the first one, anybody could grow more and have as many of those seeds as they want? The problem is the assumption of improvement. That somehow by putting a toxic gene into a plant, the plant is being not only invented, it's being improved. No, it's not being improved because it's more vulnerable to pests. It's not improved because it's now more vulnerable to superweeds. It's not being improved as a food because there is enough independent data now around the world, whether it was Arpat Putsai and his potato studies or Seralini's new studies in France or um, Irina Ernikova, the Russian Academy of Science scientists, more and more studies are showing that this toxic mix of viruses and bacteria which are necessary for a genetic transformation. You have to use a gene gun. You have to use an antibiotic resistance marker. You have to use viral promoters. They now found some of the viruses that weren't being declared by these industry have very, very wrong strands. And they're saying, this is the reason for the tumors and the cancers in the rat feeding studies. So there's an entire scientific world out there that is telling a very different story about what's going on at the genetic level. A, that there is no genetic determinism. There is nothing like a master molecule that gives instructions to the rest. There's a democracy of life. There's nothing like a junk gene and junk DNA. Everything has a role. And in fact, the parts they thought were the most useless are the most important in regulatory processes of living systems. Meantime, you have all the amazing initiatives worldwide. And I would say the three really big shifts that are taking place are one, the waking up to biodiversity. Our studies show that the more biodiversity intense your farming system is, the more nutrition you're producing. We've done a report, tediously worked out farm by farm, nutrition by nutrition, crop by crop. We call it health per acre. Because we believe yield only measures the yield of a single commodity in a monoculture. It measures what leaves the farm. But what leaves the farm doesn't shape the future of farming. It's what stays on the farm. The organic matter that stayed to replenish the soil fertility. The food and nutrition that stayed to feed the family and the community. The commodity became anonymous. Anonymous both in use, biofuel, animal feed, but also anonymous in source increasingly now because you don't know what you're eating. Was it GMO or not? Is it really beef or is it horse meat? The big scandal in Europe. And then the Chinese who beat us all in all of this then put melamine into animal feed, um, uh, pet food. And it turns out that not only did they put it into pet food, they put it into milk, baby food in China. And the man who led the campaign to stop it mysteriously died as often happens in China. If you're a activists for the environment or health or civil liberties. Um, it's not so dangerous in the US or India, but it is very dangerous in China. So we, have, we are at a watershed, 
And there are two futures. One is a non-future, a closure of the future. A closure ecologically, because 75% of the ecological damages on the planet are coming from industrial globalized agriculture. Disappearance of water, disappearance of species, destruction of soil, and 40% of all climate problems, 40% greenhouse gases are emitted from an industrial agriculture and globalized distribution. But it's also 75% of the health problem. The billion who don't get food because of the way this system is structured. And in my new book, um, Making Peace with the Earth, I have a very large section called Hunger by Design. That the hunger the world is witnessing is not an accident. It is built into the design of a food system that doesn't look at food, that doesn't look at soil, that doesn't look at farmers, doesn't look at health. Then you have two billion suffering from diseases, you know, obesity, diabetes, etc. And I would then add another 1.5, suffering from diseases due to the toxics in the food, the cancers, the neurological problems. And I would definitely say, industrial agriculture has become the most deadly threat to freedom and democracy beginning with the way the seed itself is being controlled. And that is why I started Navdanya 25 years ago, and that is why we spread the seed freedom movement worldwide with three very simple ideas of freedom. First, that all life has the freedom to evolve into the future, because all life has intrinsic worth. It has sovereignty, it's a subject. Second, not only do farmers have a right to save seeds, they have a duty to save seeds. Because if you don't have healthy, open-pollinated seed, not only is your agriculture highly vulnerable, as we've seen with pest attacks, climate vulnerability, but it's also bad quality, which is the third freedom. If we don't have seed freedom, we can't have food freedom. Food has become a curse, source of disease. Worse, as we saw with the Proposition 37, you can't have a GMO economy without a dictatorship. You can't have labeling and expect GMOs to spread. You know, why have GMOs not spread in Europe? Because they have a strong labeling law. When you can make a choice, people make a choice. When you have a a labeling law, governments are obliged to track what happens to this group of people that ate this label and what happened to that group of people that ate, that ate that label. So you can't assume safety, you get the responsibility to monitor hazards. And that is why labeling is seen as such a threat. And now the industry that organized to undermine Proposition 37 is organizing to prevent states from having passing labeling laws. They want Washington to have a very diluted version of the kind through which food safety issues have always been managed. And in any case, by the end of it, what are they producing? You know, their, their entire paradigm of breeding is based on uniformity. When quality comes out of diversity, resilience comes out of diversity, 
So one of the things we are doing in the seed freedom campaign is to actually rewrite the laws on seed breeding and rewrite the laws on ownership of seed. Because ownership of seed comes with the false claim that put a toxic gene, you've made that plant, you've made the past generations of that plant, and you own the future generations of that plant. Totally false. The idea that uniformity is a virtue breeds monocultures and vulnerability. And this will be out, I think we are releasing it in May. We call it the law of the seed. It's an amazing community of breeders and scientists and some of the top legal experts who worked with me over the years to fight piracy. The you know, I mentioned Neem, our Neem was patented. And we fought that case and Dr. Dolder who fought the case for us pro bono, uh, 11 years I fought the case. And we eventually defeated um, the US government and W.R. Grace. He's part of it. There's another very bright young lawyer who is working on something new that's happening. It's happened in Europe. It, we prevented it from happening in India through a seed satyagraha. And they're attempting to do it now in the US to make not just seed saving of a patented seed illegal, but seed saving of non-patented seeds illegal. And it's a criminalization of the freedom to have your own seed. The way I look at it, this negative future can only be put in place through what I call a food fascism. You criminalize ordinary civic action. You go after that tiny artisanal cheesemaker. In India, you go after the street vendors. No one's ever died because of a hot street food. People get diary because of the bad water. But that nice, hot chapati, WHO has done studies, totally safe. But they've made that dangerous. And across the world, food safety laws. I know you have something called a modernization of food safety. Our prevention of food adulteration was replaced by a food safety law. Europe, a new food safety authority. And they're all the same. They're stocked with the revolving door. People who are in industry yesterday are today determining What's safe for you? Then you have the criminalization, as I said, of biodiversity and seed saving. And in, when you face that kind of closure of democracy and freedom, what are the steps you take? What are the steps you can take? It used to be illegal in this country for blacks to sit in particular seats in a bus during segregation. It took one Rosa Park. One Rosa Park to say, I will sit here. Triggered an entire civil liberties movement. The British used to go around inventing laws to make more money through more control, to control our populations. One of the laws they created was the salt law, 1930. We can make so much money out of salt if we make it illegal for Indians to make their own salt. And all along the coast, they're salt making. So Gandhi walked to the beach, it's famous Dandi March. Walked to the beach, picked up the salt, and said, nature gives it from, for free. We need it for our survival. We will continue to make your salt, our salt. We will not obey your laws. And as he's written about Satyagraha, the fight for truth, as long as the superstition exists that unjust law must be obeyed, so long will slavery exist. 
And so we've done a seed satyagraha from the day of founding of Navdanya. We've said, patents? So wrong. We have a higher duty to protect biodiversity and seed. We've received it for free from nature and our ancestors. We owe it to future generations to pass it on in the richness, diversity, integrity, resilience that we received. So we will not obey the patent laws. We will not obey criminalization of seed laws. We will very consciously be seed savers and seed keepers as keepers of freedom. One of the other reasons we've launched the Seed Freedom Campaign globally is, and, and you can see more of this both on the website of Navdanya, N-A-V-D-A-N-Y-A, as well as a new website called seedfreedom.in, where there's also a declaration on seed freedom, which I invite you all to join. Um, and from 2nd October, which is Gandhi's birth anniversary, where we, I really do feel we need to just reclaim the basic principle that ultimately democracy rests on the power of people to say no to injustice. The power of no is more powerful than that ballot. And 16th October, which is World Food Day, to celebrate the fact that it's the gardens and the small farms which are the basis of food security, not those war terrains that are pretending to produce food when all they're produ producing is greenhouse gases, toxics, waste, wasted land, wasted food, wasted people. And there was a time in this country where the agriculture was shaped by the assumption that you could capture people in Africa, bring them here as slaves, make them work on the cotton farms, and it was all very natural and all very normal. And it took a few people to say, no, blacks are also human beings and deserve freedom and deserve equality and deserve respect. And the abolition movement started and eventually an end was put to slavery. What I see happening in the area of food, in the area of seed patenting, is a whole new food slavery and seed slavery being created. And this new slavery is not just enslaving the less privileged human being. It definitely is, because it's enslaving them in hunger. It's enslaving the better off, because even you don't have a right to choose what you're eating. Can you imagine? If we are what we eat, and we don't know what we are eating, then we don't know what we are. And worse, for the first time, we have an enslavement system for all species on Earth through what I call the new bioimperialism. The idea, the crazy idea that life in its diversity is the invention of inventions, because what are corporations but inventions? So we created inventions called corporations and now they say they've invented the planet and life on Earth. It's too big a hallucination for us to allow it to be carried on. We need to shape another future of food, and what that future will be will depend on each of us being active in shaping freedom, food democracy, and a celebration of life. Thank you.
Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.